This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Church, great to see you all here today. My name is Matt, lead pastor here at Anchor. If you are new or visiting, I'd like to extend my welcome. Great to see you here today. We are beginning a three-week series uh, on relationships, as Bree has mentioned. So today... I'll be speaking about singleness next week. I'll be speaking about marriage. And then on the third week, James Wong will be speaking about uh, Christian friendship. So uh, we hope this series is, is helpful for us. I'm going to pray as we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So please join me. Father God, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it addresses us as your people, as a community, as a family. We thank you that your word critiques uh, the cultural narrative that we are so caught up in and at times even critiques a Christian subculture. And so, Father, we pray this morning as we look at your word, particularly addressing the topic of singleness, you would help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to be mindful of the assumptions that we have inherited from our world and even from our, our Christian culture. And help us to be the type of community that genuinely embodies the family that you call us to be. I pray now that you would speak to us by your word, through your spirit, and I ask this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. I, I don't know if you've ever tried to find positive pop culture references to singleness. They're very far and few between. They're very difficult to find. Uh, in fact, the most common reference is the movie, 40-Year-Old Virgin, which was released a number of years ago. If you're not familiar with the movie, the premise of it is there are a number of colleagues. They work together and their friend is 40 and heaven forbid he is a virgin. He has not experienced what they have in terms of finding sexual intimacy with another partner. And so the, the entire premise of the movie is their friends are trying to hook their friend up and to get him to, to burst his bubble, so to speak, to lose his virginity. And the, the narrative that's caught up in that movie is this idea that um, somehow you are entirely unfulfilled and unwhole until you've reached this pinnacle, this climax, this, this thing that occurs in our culture around us. Um, that you're not completely you, until you've expressed your desires, particularly your sexual desires. Our culture is obsessed with sexualized coupledom, right? You think of the Jerry Maguire, you complete me moment, right? That, that is what so many people are looking for, yearning for, hungering after. And, and until you've reached that moment, until you've been able to say, you complete me to another person, somehow you're unfulfilled, not complete, and the rest of society looks down on you, much like these three friends do in the story of the 40-year-old version. And sadly, that vision, that reality, that, that narrative has crept its way into the church. Uh, the church has this narrative of um, if you're single, there's something wrong with you or... Um, you know, you are you, somehow it's like just automatically like, let's just hook you up with my friends, irrespective of whether there is any sort of chemistry connection. Uh, you're looked down upon, perhaps looked, looked over for leadership positions. That is particularly true when it comes to those who are in vocational ministry. It's like almost the prerequisite of your leadership is that you are married. And so somehow this narrative gets bound up in what it means to be the church. 
And so this morning, I want us to think biblically about what singleness means and perhaps correct some of those imbalances and, and help us see God's vision for what it means to be a people who can look across at those who are in a different situation and circumstance to you and consider the position that they are in. Now, I want to point out the bleedingly obvious. I realize the irony of being married and preaching on singleness. Uh, I'm, I'm not single at the moment. I was and perhaps will be in the future, but currently am not. But I also want to suggest that, that and I hope that that's not a, 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 for a long time, right? I, I would like to be married to my wife for a very long time. But I want to suggest that that doesn't make me unqualified to address this topic. My hope is not to just speak of personal experience, but to bring God's word to our community on this matter. And I have consulted a number of friends who are single and unmarried as I've written this message. So I hope it is communicated with uh, empathy and with understanding. Now, firstly, I want to say this is a real and relevant issue for our church community. Last night, I went through our entire database and did all of the calculations. We have 51% of our church here, those of you who say this is your church, who are currently unmarried. And I use that term cautiously. It's an umbrella term for those of you who are single and perhaps dating, who are widowed, who are divorced, or who are single and not in a dating relationship, right? So 50, more than half of our community are not married. That leaves 49% of our community who are married. Now, interestingly, when you compare those statistics to the broader stats across Australia, 48% of people in Australia are married. So we're very on par with the rest of Australia. But when you compare those statistics to church attendance, the numbers balloon out. 65% of people in the average church are married. We have an overrepresentation of marrieds and, in fact, widows in the church and an underrepresentation comparatively to the general population of single and divorcees. Now, there might be some reasons why those two categories might be the case. But I want to say that this is a real and relevant issue for more than half of the people in this church. Now, one of the things that happens here often at Anchor is I have people say to me, oh, there are no other families at this church. There are no other single people at this church. There were no other artists at this church. There are no other, It's just like everyone feels like their category of people is a minority. And I think that's just the reality of being a church the size that we are. Once you get to a much bigger church, it feels like there's a critical mass of your people. All right. But what I do want to say is that if you are not married in this church, you are in a very small majority of people here. And that's important for us to understand and realize this is a real issue. Secondly, I want to say that a lot of people experience their singleness very differently. There is no one uniform way of experiencing singleness. Some of you are willingly single. You have chosen to be single, not by virtue of not having the options to date or to get married, but you have personally chosen to be single. Others are un willingly single, that you have a desire to be married, you have a desire to have a family, and those opportunities have not been afforded you. Some of you are single and have never been married. Others are single by divorce. And in fact, some are even single by virtue of death, that you are a widow. Some of you are single and you've dated in the past, and others of you are single and you've never been on a date. Some in this room are single by virtue of an unwanted same-sex attraction. Now, this is to say that every single person in this church experiences their singleness differently. So there is no one uniform 
way of just categorizing this and looking at someone's lived experience of this. And I think that ought to develop a sense of uh, empathy, willingness to listen, willingness to ask questions about where people are at. So with those two caveats in mind, we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. I want to start by saying this emphatically because it's not often said, particularly in church, that God values singleness. We saw that in that reading that Brie read for us. In 1 Corinthians 7, there's a bit happening. It's a bit of a confusing chapter, to be honest. But there's a bit happening here. In a time of crisis in this church, Paul is addressing both singleness and marriage in this chapter. There are some in this church and in the cultural context of Corinth who are saying that the body is bad. Uh, the body is bad, that pleasure is bad, therefore sex and marriage is to be rejected altogether. Others are saying, well, since the body is bad, therefore it doesn't really matter what you do with your body, so embrace whatever pleasure you want. There is just this asceticism on one hand and this like licentiousness on the other. And into this context, this like weird dichotomy that is happening here, Paul wants to bring a partial word. Now you add to that, in first century Roman culture, sex had this really weird backdrop to it. That, that men had sex with their wives for procreation. They had sex with a prostitute for pleasure. That was very common in first century Roman culture. And you add to that that this church is experiencing what we know at least is a very severe drought. There is a, so Paul is addressing both this cultural melee of weird things happening around the body and relationships and sex and that there is this like real present crisis happening in the church here, that there is a, a time of famine, a time of drought, almost like he's, he's speaking to this church like they're in the midst of a global pandemic, right? That, that's their context that he's speaking into. And he brings a word of partial sensitivity around the issue of marriage and singleness. So the idea is this. Paul is saying singleness is good. He is saying that clearly. In fact, that his, is his preference. He will, he will verbalize that a number of times. That's his preference. And that's evidenced by his own life. Paul was never married. As far as we can tell theologically, historically, Paul was never married. But equally, he also says marriage is good. And Paul doesn't forbid those who choose to be married to get married. His encouragement is, in a time of crisis, in this famine that we are experiencing, his recommendation is, is to stay where you are right now. If you are single, stay single. If you're married, don't seek a divorce. Just stay where you are and pursue God. Now, Paul, in this context, offers this as a liberating freedom for people to choose. You're free to remain single. You're free to get married. Have a look at what he says in verse 27 of chapter 7 there. He says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Both options are legitimate and okay. You are free to be married. You are free to be single. And it needs to be said, it's almost weird that it needs to be said, but Paul sees singleness, not only in this context, but also perpetually for his life as a good way of living out what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. Now, why does it need to be said? And why does it sound weird that it, that it needs to be said? Well, because the reality is, is that it often doesn't 
feel good for many. And what is often inadvertently communicated, even in church circles, is that singleness isn't good. I was listening to a story this week of uh, a single woman being interviewed. She was sharing that, that the church that she grew up in, the church would often pray for the singles and the sick in the same sentence and with the same sentiment. Like, there are these people who are sick, there's something wrong with them, would you fix them? And all of the single people would fix them too, right? That's often inadvertently or perhaps advertently very starkly communicated in that context. So what is good about it? Well, Paul doesn't give an exhaustive list here in 1 Corinthians 7. In fact, he only he doesn't really give us a reason, but the, the closest thing we get to the goodness of singleness is this. Have a look at what it says in verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And worldly, don't read worldly like John writes it there. That's just the things of this world, the present moments of this world. He is, he is bound up with this, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the married or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, he's not really saying what's great about singleness there. He's actually saying that the both singleness and marriage have their different benefits and challenges. In fact, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church being told that there was this gift of singleness. Anyone else grew up in a church context where you're told there's this gift of singles, almost like God gives this supernatural ability for people to endure singleness, right? Paul doesn't say that here. He doesn't say that at all. He's, in fact, he's saying both marriage and singleness are a gift. And the way that he's using gift there is just to describe it's the season of life that you find yourself in, not some supernatural superhuman ability to endure a single life. But Paul's clear preference here, for himself at least, and at least in the season that this church finds themselves in, is to stay as you are. Because to be single means that you have a single-minded devotion to the Lord. You have an undivided devotion to God. Paul's argument is that if you're married, you have... You have a vested interest in the things of this world in a relational capacity in a way that someone who is not married does. But that's not the whole story. That's not all Paul says or all the scriptures say about singleness. He is, say, he, he, he is acutely aware of the realities of what it means to be a single person. But he doesn't address that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The only thing that he says is that there is, a, there is a difference. There is a difference here. And the difference is that those who are not married have the ability to be devoted to the Lord in an undivided way. Now, to be single, of course, has its unique challenges. There's a high risk of loneliness. Now, I say high risk because you can still be bitterly lonely in a marriage. But there is, to be fair, a higher risk of loneliness when you're single. There's a loss of potential of having children, of being a mother or a father. 
in Sydney, the difficulty of getting into the, the housing market, right? You, potentially your, your choice of dwelling is very limited, right? Because you have a single income. There are some challenges to being single that are real that Paul just doesn't address in this context. But what he is saying is that there is a difference. There is a difference. Now, marriage, to be fair, also has its unique challenges. And I think it's unhelpful to paint an overly positive, Hollywood, Disney, romanticized version of marriage. Sam Albury, who is a a pastor, author, and a single man himself, says that it's very unhelpful when we compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. Just like we do on social media, you, you compare your mundane life with someone else's highlight reel, right? It's, it's an unhelpful comparison to make. Both singleness and marriage have their unique blessings and challenges. And the church ought to be the type of community where both are celebrated, where both are valued, where both feel accepted and wanted and important. But, I think the real lived experience for almost all, not exclusively, but many that I speak to, is that they, there is a genuine desire to want to meet someone, to be married and to start a family. Not exclusively, but I think that is probably the, the most real experience for single people that I have spoken to. And so what if you're not feeling good about being single? What if there is a, a disconnection between head and heart Maybe you're swinging between contentment and bitterness. Maybe sometimes you find yourself trusting in God's purposes and then in another moment you find yourself angry and bitter. I want to say that's completely normal. I mean, we've just literally walked out of a sermon series on the book of Job, have we not? About what it looks like to experience a season of disappointment and pain and suffering. And I don't think it's contrary to faith or contrary to uh, contentment to desire for something. After all, we've been created for relationships. And so what do we have to offer in that context? What do we have to offer people who are yearning for something, praying for something that God is perhaps not answering on? And what I want to do this morning as we close our time out is, is I want to draw a contrast. I want to paint a picture between some, some kingdom eternal promises that are ours and how the scriptures use them to apply to a certain context in our lived reality. And I want to go to Isaiah 56 to do that, to talk about beautiful promises that transcend an earthly reality. And this is what it says in Isaiah 56 verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. So eunuchs are those who were often um, emasculated to serve in the king's women's quarters, right? So that A male servant, emasculated, cannot sleep with the king's concubines, right? So here is a eunuch devoted to service in the king's quarters. And this is what Isaiah says. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, please, please do not mishear me on this. I'm not saying that like the eunuchs who were outside of God's people, if you're single, you're also on the outside. That's not the comparison I'm trying to make here. What I'm trying to say is here is a, a principle, a, a, a reality, a promise that transcends an earthly experience that the prophet Isaiah is saying to those who are eunuchs, here is a promise that is true of you that you can cling to and hold on to. Now, this verse here, for those who are you know, familiar with the literature around uh, same-sex attraction, the, the side B Christians, those who say I'm a Christian and I'm celibate for life, this has become one of the profound promises that they are clinging to, right? But he, So here's what I'm trying to make the point of. In a culture, particularly the ancient Near East, where inheritance, the center of people's hopes and future were on their children, Right? Your superannuation account were your children in the ancient Near East, in the first century. They carried the honor of your family name, their family lineage. In, at least in Hebrew culture, in God's people, it was, the name was tied to the inheritance of the land and a significant sign, at least perceptively, of God's blessing. And so the eunuch was thought to lack all of that. No kids. No security, no inheritance, and no blessing, so it seems. And yet, what does God say? What does the prophet Isaiah say? These beautiful words from verse 5 there. Come back to it. Isaiah 56 verse 5. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you see what he's trying to do there? He's connecting these rich, profound kingdom promises to a very real, felt, lived, earthly experience. There is something true spiritually here for these people to cling towards. There is a kingdom blessing better than a lineage of sons and daughters, better than earthly security and inheritance that the eunuch has because he is within the household of God's people. And in God's house, the eunuch is welcomed and known and celebrated. There is a monument erected in their honor. Now, to be fair, that's true of everybody, right? That's true of, of everyone, married or single, right? But the promises of God here are real in the lived experience of this world, now is a shadow, then is reality. And the challenge for us is to live in the now, clinging to the promises that we know will be real for us in the future. And so whatever your earthly circumstance, Paul will say you're free to choose to do what you want. But here are things that are true of you no matter what. The promises of God your future reality. 
I want to say that for the most part, I, I was reading this, um, this book way too late last night. I picked it up way too late in the process of preparing this message, written by um, one of the, the lecturers at Moore Theological College, the Anglican College down the road here in Newtown. Her name's Danny Treeweek. She's written this, it's a very academic book, but it was brilliant. And what she was saying effectively is that for the most part, when we seek to define the conversation around marriage and singleness, we just go back to Genesis. And it's not good that the man was alone, right? But she's saying instead of just looking back, we also need to look forward. We also need to look at what the end of the story will be. And that reality is that in the age to come, there will be no giving and receiving in marriage. And I think that's a really profound correction for the church. But here the promises of God are true. This is the reality. That in Christ, uh, your deepest satisfaction and intimacy that you could ever possibly hope to experience is yours. That we have an inheritance and a hope that can never perish, spoil or fade. And it's not just something that's reserved for the future. There are also realities that are present for us now. There are also things that ought to be true now for those who claim the name of Jesus and are incorporated into his family. One of those realities that um, Sam Albury points out is that those who are single have the opportunity to be a living embodiment of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in a way that those who are married simply cannot. Sam says this, he says, of the different ways, uh, single or marriage, they both point to the reality of the gospel. He says, if marriage points us to the shape of the reality of what lies ahead, that is, husband and wife are a picture of Christ's union with the church. So if marriage shows us the shape of the reality, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the reality, that Jesus truly is enough. And as a single person in this church, you point all of the married people in this church to the reality that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is enough. And you do that in a way that no married person can. Now that is a beautiful picture of what it means for everyone, irrespective of your relationship status, to point beyond towards the good news of Jesus. A number of years ago, I traveled to the UK for the Alpha Leadership Conference. And while I was there, I mean, one of the things that Alpha does is they, they just transcend the entire sweep of Christendom, right? Everything from Catholic to Orthodox to Evangelical, right the way across the Charismatic. And so they've, they've put all of these leaders together in one room and we're there with a bunch of um, Catholic fathers from Australia. And I, I was aware of the vows that, um, you know, Catholic priests make, the vow of singleness, but I, I, to be honest with you, I just thought it was a bit of a recruitment problem for the Catholic Church. You know, it's like you've really like whittled down the pool of people who are willing to become a priest if you say you can't be married, right? That was the sum total of my appreciation of the issue. But I think after speaking to this one father in particular, I think I understood what in my ignorance I had missed, and that is this. So when you become a Catholic priest, and by, this is by no means a, you know, an affirmation of all Catholic doctrine, but when you become a Catholic priest, you make a vow. In fact, three vows. You make a vow of poverty. 
Right? So you live out of a common purse with all of the other parish workers. You make a vow of obedience to your bishop. And finally, you make a vow of chastity, a vow of singleness. And I was listening to this father share his story of his lived experience, what it means. And he said that it, this is a powerful countercultural message to a world that is obsessed with money, power, and sexualized coupledom. I was like, oh, I finally get it. Father Michael Nixon says this, when a married couple sees a Catholic priest, they should see his celibacy is pointing them towards their ultimate destiny. He says, I can be a sign for other people. Now, the, the truth of the matter is that both single and married have the ability to point beyond our lived reality to the truth of the gospel in different ways, in different ways. And I hope that what that means for our church is that you don't look across the, the relationship status divide with pity or with a, you know, a deep envy, but to look across and say, I'm thankful for this person because they point me they remind me of something that I need to know that will be true, that is true and will be true in the age to come. But like I said, this is more than just a future hope, right? These promises are more than just a future hope. There is a present blessing of what it means to be a part of God's family. And we say all the time here at Anchor Church is not an event you attend, but a... Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad that's sinking in. Church is not an event to attend, but a family to belong to. And we want that to not just be a theological slogan, but a lived experience in the life of our church. Jesus says this in Luke 18. I think it's Luke 18. He says this in the context of the disciples who have said, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. He says this, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this age and the age to come eternal life. That in fact, when we are part of God's people, we're incorporated into this beautiful, rich, extended family that every other person is your brother or sister in Christ. And we, we ought to be creative about the way that we can express that, especially given the reality that more than half of our church are not married. If we only have one imagination of how that plays itself out, we have to be creative. Now, one of the beautiful stories that I have that has happened in our church many years ago was a, a young couple in our church, married, had their first child, uh, and they wanted to choose godparents for their, their child. They were in a Bible study led by a single guy called Mike. They loved Mike. They adored Mike. And so they asked Mike if he would be their son's godfather. Right? And I, I thought it was such a beautiful expression of what it looks like to be creative about this. Because for the most part, when you think, oh, I'm going to select a god godparent. And I realize that that tradition is probably not as common as it used to be. But you would just pick another couple. And here, here Matt and Mel were saying, no, in fact, there is something that we see in the way that Mike is stewarding his singleness, is living for the Lord, that we want our son to grow up emulating. And so we're going to ask Mike to be his godfather. And I think that is just one example of the plethora of ways 
that we can give expression to this reality that together we are pointing each other to the truths of the gospel in different ways. That's why our GCs aren't just demographic GCs, right? We don't just put all the single young people in a group and then all the marrieds in one group. Now I realize that there are just practical things that mean that some, sometimes it's difficult for a married couple, for example, to be in a GC if you have children. Perhaps one of you needs to go to a GC and you alternate week by week or you try and figure that out by taking your kids along. There are some challenges there that are real. But by and large, we want our GCs to be a broad cross-section, a multi-generational church. A couple of years ago, our GC had everything from high school students, people who had just finished high school, to grandparents, all in the one group. And we had moments where it was so beautiful, where we had grandparents speaking into the lives of people who were wrestling with what it meant for their, the disappointments that they'd experienced of their parents. And these people were able to say, you know what? We've been in, their, in their, your parents' shoes. It's so hard to be a parent. It's such a beautiful expression. And so I think we ought to be the type of church that can embrace the other well and, and embody what it means to be family. The cultural narrative of our world is this. It's okay to be single and divorced. It's okay to be single and widowed. It's okay to be single and promiscuous, but heaven forbid that you would ever be single and celibate, sexually unfulfilled. How could you possibly be a whole true you if that was the case? And I want to say categorically that the Christian story that draws you in denies that statement. Our world screams that every, almost every day, almost every TV show you watch, every pop song you listen to, every novel you read reinforces that statement, that narrative. And we want to say that there is a better way. I want to say to those who are single in our church that there is nothing wrong with you. You're not a problem to fix in this church that God is still working, that you are valuable, that you're seen and as important as any other married person in this church community. I want to also acknowledge that for some, there is pain and loss and grief that comes with your singleness. There is the, the grief of the loss of what could be, what um, Jenny Brown, who's a Christian psychologist, calls disenfranchised grief. That is a grief that is not acknowledged more broadly by the, by the general community. And I want to put a few links to some resources that might be helpful for those in our Facebook group this week. And I want to say that that pain, that longing, that desire is not an indication of a lack of faith for you. And I, I particularly want to pause and thank those of you who, in this church community who are single and who long to be married and long to start a family but have chosen not to walk in the compromise of our culture, not to participate in the hookup culture that's around us, who have chosen to, to find someone who holds the same convictions of faith as you do. For those of you who are, who are in that position, I want to say thank you. You have demonstrated something to this church community of what it means to have Christ as your sufficiency. Thank you for stewarding your singleness. Thank you for that reminder that you offer to this community. 
And I also want to say this, singleness is not purgatory and marriage is not heaven. Singleness is not purgatory and marriage is not heaven. And the sooner we stop pretending that either of those are true, the better for our church, the better for our singles and the better for our marrieds. Our identity is found in Christ, not our status. It is found in our adoption into God's family as beloved sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. And we await the appearing of our Saviour who will call us to be with Him. And until that day, we live as signposts, foretastes of the kingdom reality, both married and single. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want to encourage those of you in this church who have friends here to do this meal together. Perhaps walk across the room and find someone and and celebrate this meal together, maybe within your GCs, as a statement of saying that that this meal is about the unity that the gospel brings, the the blood of Jesus that was poured out, the, the body of Jesus that was broken for our forgiveness. This meal is a declaration of our unity. And so as we transition now to response and worship, I want to encourage you to to find someone perhaps from your GC, a friend, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, take it together as a a way of declaring the unity that we have. If you're still okay to do it by yourself today, if you're not here with anyone you you know or you'd prefer to just take some time to do business with God by yourself, that's okay. But, But this meal is part of what it looks like to be incorporated by faith into the family of God. And so as we respond together, I want to encourage you to do that. So please stand with me. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for what you are doing in this church. I thank you for every single person, irrespective of relationship status, God. We know that you have uniquely called each of us to play an important, significant and real part in what it means to be your people. I thank you for the way that our single brothers and sisters point us beyond the realities of marriage to the sufficiency of Christ in a way that married people simply cannot. Father, I pray that you'd be stirring within this community the ability to be your people in a way that is so starkly countercultural to the narrative of this world, to be a people who truly embody what it means to be family. They're receiving brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers a hundredfold would be the experience of everyone who calls this church home and claims the name of Christ. We pray now as we celebrate this meal together, Father, that you would remind us of the finished work of Jesus. His blood poured out for our forgiveness, His body broken to incorporate us into your family. Lord, we worship you, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen.